Hey friends, we're back with part two of the conversation between me and Steve Woods from Vertex. In this episode, we talk about how long training should last, protecting trainees, assessing their competency, and also we're going to be talking about a very iconic technique of belaying that is used in the UK with a very catchy name. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. For me, when I'm training, it's not about skill acquisition. It's about comfort with that skill that I've just given you. I, I want people to feel like when I leave, they're not freaking out being like, oh, guy, I do this myself. You know, like if that's the case, then I've, all I've done is revealed to them what is potent- possible, given them bare bones, but I haven't given them the, the time to really develop those skills. And I think that that's something from when we talk to our clients a lot about when they'll ask for, you know, this is how much training we want. Well, I'll say this is actually how much training I think you need. The battle of how much training, yeah. Let me ask you this question. If I was a new client of yours, like brand new client, and I, I'm in a guesstimate, let's say I'm, I've got some low elements, I've maybe got a handful of highs, maybe I have some a zip as well. When you're having these kind of conversations around training, what's your what's your like stick when it comes to like how, what you would recommend in terms of amount of training? Well, we, we try to have a... Uh, a sort of negotiation with them really because it is like that and it depends on who you're talking to so if we're talking to the person booking the course and they're like um you know a, a senior member of staff and we say well this is how much time you know they go great that sounds brilliant but then of course when they go to somebody further up they say well we can't have staff not on sessions for that length of time we can't have, afford that so it needs to come down a little bit so it is a bit of negotiation and, and sometimes within that negotiation is well we're going to do this but you're still going to have to do this and this and this whatever we do we're not completing the picture for you um you know we're going to come in and we're going to have this false environment this sanitized fakery and lots of role play and and stuff it's never the same as the reality of having a group in front of you and you know those genuine people with those genuine emotions whether they're excitement or worry or fear or, or anger or whatever it is um so whatever we do you've got to carry on this training and this learning process after we've gone but a standard low ropes course for us is is you know a two-day course we would do to train people on a low ropes course and that would include some basic facilitation skills and some reviewing skills and practicing that in in and around the low ropes activities we sometimes do a basic one-day safety low ropes program if that's what people want because that's what they they said we we just want the safety so we'll go into a one-day safety program traditional high ropes course where they're belaying each other we do that over sort of four days but if we're doing the full uh urca syllabus now then we would do that over five days because we need to actually bring in alternative devices alternative harnesses so that requires a, a longer duration to get people through that program. Uh, something like a zip line, oh, crikey, it just depends on the zip line, doesn't it? They're not simple anymore, are they? You know, I mean, when I first started, they weren't simple. Every zip line was slightly different, but I mean, now they're just unbelievably complicated and continue to be so as more and more people bring out new whiz bit slidey trolleys with internal brakes and this, that, and the other, and they want to have the fastest, longest, grandest, biggest, crazy mess uh, you know, going out there. Um, so zip line training could be anything from a simple gravity stop zip line where they just come to a gradual halt and, and maybe get lowered off or something. You know, if they've already been trained in high ropes, we might manage to do that in a day. But if they've got these bigger zip lines with braking mechanisms at the end, really important communication systems because they're trying to have high throughput down them. Uh, maybe some elements of rescue going in there as well because people can get stranded mid cable and you might have to go and retrieve them. And it, you know, that can stretch into four or five days just for that zip line, if not, if not sometimes more. So that's really difficult to sort of talk about that. But your standard traditional high ropes course, they're belaying each other. You've got to 
you know, we call it a Jacob's ladder. I think giant ladder. Yeah, you got a giant ladder. You got a crate stack. You've got a um, some kind of traversing activities where they're walking sideways. They've got a, a leap of faith or a pamper pole. You know, something like that for us is going to be either three, four, or five days, depending on the factors of competency before they start. What level of training they want, equipment wise, um, it's going to be over that sort of duration. Yeah, and I. And once again, I, I put it out to the listeners who are listening. Normally, you hear from me from the perspective of high five and what we recommend around training. And Steve is is exactly repeating what I say. So, <laughs> um, so, but but I put it out there to say like that you can hear this is the standard by which when we have these conversations with clients and say this is what I think sometimes people underestimate when you say I'm going to teach someone how to belay on some element or I'm going to teach them. They think because the word is singular that the activity is a singular skill, but there's a yeah, combination so. of so many layering and scaffolding of skills. And sometimes there's a case, you know, I was at a site last week where I I knew them and they were being resistant. It was a school where they were struggling with professional development day times. And so I really ended up saying, I'm going to come out for a day, but it really is an assessment. And I went out there with the knowledge that some of these people have been trained. I asked them to show me what they'd done. And they just couldn't remember the skills. And those, those new people who were there spent two hours trying to tie a knot, couldn't get it right, and, and then had that re- realization, okay, this is more than the day. So, and it was, and it was sometimes you need that sometimes as a reminder because I can say as much as I can, but I want to, I want to give the client as much value as possible, but I want them to be aware of what they're able to achieve. There's two other things to think about as well, is, is what you want to actually include in the day. You know, so one of the harder things to teach, which we, we I think we do it very well, but I still think it's hard for somebody to grasp until, until they've been involved in some sessions, which we always recommended are under guidance of somebody still, but they're not always, but is actually the process of training participants or your group to belay each other. So we, one of the first questions we ask a new instructor is how long before you were competent? And someone will say two hours, some will say several days and some will say i'm never going to be competent i'm still learning you know you get that kind of range but of course let me say well how long do you give to your students to be competent before they're you know belaying each other and they're like oh crikey 30 seconds a minute you know if you think about it each person it's, it's an incredibly short period of time so some of our clients don't want that skill in their training course and so that can actually reduce training course by quite a lot because they've just got to learn their personal belaying which can still take some people days yeah. to learn that, the art of belaying, you know, to learn it well. But if you're putting that into the program as well, so this instructor is not just going to be competent themselves, but they've got to learn it to such a level and such depth mm-hmm. that they're able to now deliver that to someone who maybe never, never done it before in their life. In literally five or 10 minutes, they've got to deliver that to them and get them to be practiced at it and to include it in their sessions. I think, so what you're having to put into the program can make a huge difference on the duration of it. And some people just, they just, until they've, like you say, until you've been on site and tried to deliver that, they find it really hard. That's really going to take you a day to do that. And it's like, yeah, that's going to take us a day to do that. And and then they're going to have to practice it after we've left because it's going to take them a long time to become really good at it. And then the other factor we get is how many people on the training course and everybody wants, can we put another one on? Can we put another one on? And I, I, every Break Street extra person they put on, the, the amount of attention that the others get just diminishes massively. It's like an exponential curve. So you start with six, great, six is a good number. I've got a little belay team of three over there and a belay team of three over there or a rescue team of three and a rescue team of three. It's a fantastic Perfect. number. Sixes and nines are my favorites. <laughs> sixes and nines, yeah. Can we, can we put one more on? Seven, 
now we've got an awkward number, you know? Yeah. And also, you know, and, and my attention's now on that seventh person as well. We do train We do train in numbers as far as 12. That's sa- same for us. We don't believe the quality of that is anywhere near as maybe a, a, a nine. And I would, I would argue that if you've got a six or a nine, you're going to get a much higher quality outputs of those six and nine people than if you just chuck those extra three on and make it a 12. You've still got another group of three, but your ability to be with them, to, to, to coach them, to notice them, to, to pick up things about how they particularly like learning and what they want to learn, it just diminishes extra, extra person. It just goes down and down and down and down and down. And again, they think they're getting good value. It's like, well, if I get another person, I'm getting more value out of the money I'm spending. And it's like, you're probably not because you'll probably find if you, if you put those extra people on, the, the number that aren't going to pass at the end is going to drop right down. Whereas if you take those extra people off, you might get all of these people to pass. That's such a valuable valuable point because we have very much the same situation. We we cap our trainings at twelve. Ours is a trainer daily rate, so it's not based on the number yeah. of people, right? So exactly the same. So what they what they do is they want to fill the twelve. And I and I say this to every every client. They will, I will say you can have up to twelve, but once again, my recommendation is keep the keep the group to an amount of people who are actually going to use the course. I've gone to trainings where I've had the maintenance guy and the head chef and it's just <laughs> they've just piled in all these extra people and I'm saying, what do you even do here? And then it's like, yeah, well, I don't have the the time to really focus or maybe it, maybe everyone only gets one belay or two belays in the, in the opportunity because the repetition isn't there. Because they're not ready for it, you then end up with situations that as a kind, caring, passionate person, you end up having to deal with. You know, they have a moment. They have that moment whilst at height and you've now got to care for them. You can't just ignore them and say, no, program, we've got to move on. We've got to do this next. It's like, no, this person needs to be cared for. You know, they've had a horrible, scary moment. This is real to them. What they're feeling, you know, look after them. And of course, that just takes away time from the program you've got to then complete what you're trying to complete. Hey friends, so I thought I would jump into the middle of this conversation to let you know that High Five is hiring a new trainer. So as we're talking about all things training in this episode and you're interested and you believe in the philosophies that we talk about and you would love to learn more about the potential for working alongside myself here at High Five, then I'm going to throw into the description of this episode a link where you can find out more about the application process. However, I would say that if you're interested, even if it's a slight interest and you just like to know more about it, then please either email me at pbrown at highfiveadventure.org or go to Instagram at Vertical Playpen and you can just send me a message and I'm happy to chat on there as well about the potential of working alongside me as a trainer at High Five. And let's continue with this episode and this conversation between me and Steve. What this leads to is that a role that we have as a trainer beyond the teaching of the skill is a promising protection, but I think maybe that's the wrong word, of the people we're actually going to be teaching. Because the very often the client who we're dealing with, the person who's paying for, is not the person that necessarily is going to be the one we're teaching. So they may end up giving people to us. There's a responsibility for those people who 
if we don't advocate for them, aka we don't then spoke to speak to the client and say these people need more time or they didn't have enough or these are the strategies of training they need to continue. If we don't do that, then the individual people who train will get pushed into facilitating programs when they're not comfortable and not ready, which could in turn increase the potential risk because without us being their advocate in terms of what is because we know more and we have this larger spectrum of knowledge. I've seen and I've heard of stories where individuals have been pushed in, you know, Bob Ryan at Project Adventure, he did a a 20-year study on risk in this field and found that obviously, and it makes sense, but the areas that are higher risk, the reason risk occurs is at the end of the day, right, when you're fatigued, you have external pressure. And that's often yeah. external pressure for either from a client or from a supervisor to say you had to get through in a certain number of people, or maybe you were running out of time and there were like two kids who didn't climb. And so you you put that pressure on yourself because of the expectation that you think has to happen, that everyone has to climb. And I think that external pressure from a supervisor, we have the opportunity to try to mitigate that through authority and through expertise and say like, these are people who are not ready. How, many, how often do you have to have those kind of conversations? Uh, well, quite often, but I, a lot of our clients now are long-standing clients. So some of our clients have been with us for the full 20 years that Vertex has been in existence. And most people that come to us, we, we tend to keep them. We don't always, you know, we're not the perfect business. Nobody is and we make mistakes. And sometimes people have other goals and, you know, cl- customers have other goals and they, they, they migrate away from us. But because we get to know people very well and we know the clients very well, that we might initially have those types of conversations, but they become less and less and less. One of the things we often do when it comes to the assessment time is we talk to the participants about why we're assessing them. And, and one of the things I would say in that is actually my assessment is about protecting you as much as it is about protecting who you're going to work with. You know, it's really important that when we make sure that people have a measure of competency here, which means they can safely go and we use the phrase into the next phase of your training or development. It's not, this is not over now. You know, this is like this stage one done. You're going to go stage two now Um, and getting the client to understand that. And the vast majority of our clients do. So most of our people that we now train will go into this supervised, supported, nurtured work environment before they're allowed to run their sessions. So we say to them that we might say to you today, you're not ready, you're not going to pass, we're going to defer you, you're going to have to go away and practice these things or, you know, whatever it is. But trust me, that's for your benefit. You don't want to be out there with a group if you're not ready. You know, A, it's just going to be a horrible experience for you, but B, you can hurt somebody here. You know, it's not about, it's not about you and, and, and whether you feel it's right or wrong to pass, it's, it's just, just about doing the right thing. So we have those types of conversations with him. But yeah, we, we have in the past had some tricky conversations with, with clients as well when they're like, well, why haven't you passed everybody? You know, we've done an archery course, a quad bike course, an axe throwing course, and they always all pass. Well, how come on your course they're not passing? And it's like, well, you know, whatever those other people have done, that's fine. But I'm telling you now, this, these people here aren't quite ready and you need to give them some more time and so you do end up in those challenging conversations but i would say it's it it would certainly would feel to me right now that it's becoming less and less rather than rather than more and more the industry has has gone through waves of growth and i feel like absolutely in the last 20 years there's been this big increase even from the point of which i started in the early 2000s i've seen like some change and some growth and i think that that comes with two parts it comes with an increased potential of risk and accident. So we hear more of incidences maybe occurring because of increase, but then with that comes then, in, then an increase in standardization or an awareness of standardization. When we think back, I go back to your, your point that you made early on, where you said when you first started, you could do whatever you wanted. And now we're at a point yeah. where that's not the case. 
what do you see as maybe the pros and the cons to some of that growth that we've experienced in the industry? Oh, I think it's great. You know, there's more opportunities. I, I honestly believe that something like a, a challenge course or a ropes course experience can really help young people if, as they're developing, if it's guided in the right way to understand things like risk. And so I'm going to use cliche phrases, but stepping outside your comfort zone and the benefits of that and that it's okay to feel like that because at the other end, there's something good. And the thing about ropes courses, why they're so good at it is because there's to some degree, very little actual risk. You know, most of the risk is perceived, isn't it? It's inside your mind, it's your thoughts, it's your feelings, it's your imagination. And the actual risk can be controlled quite well. So we can have these really tense, intense experiences but without really being put at harm. So the fact that there's more opportunity for that, you know, families can go and do it whilst they're on holidays. There's more opportunities within the school environment. There's more opportunities within the scouts and the summer camp in your place. I think that's, that's good. And, and as you get more things out there, you do have to have standardization. We do need to have that. One of the problems with standardization is it does two things. One is it creates a, a picture of what everything should be. And if you're not in that picture, then people feel uncomfortable and like, well, why aren't you doing this? It says here this. It says, yeah, but I'm doing something new or innovative or different. Or today I have a group that just is going to work better if I do this thing over here. It frightens people sometimes and they, they can become, become boxed in. But of course, as soon as you have a standard, people say, well, that's it. You know, and of course, my experience of working on the, the standards committee in Europe is you're not writing the best, you're writing the absolute minimum you should be doing. You know, this is the lowest best, not the best best, it's the lowest, <laughs> the lowest best. It's almost, what I've seen it, it's almost brought in some cases quality down. It's been brought it down to the standard. Oh, I didn't need to do this stuff. I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. In some cases, brought it up to the standard, which is good, but it's also had the reverse effect and it's brought the quality down again. So standards are fantastic. You know, they're, they're good for us in Europe. It was a wonderful experience for Europe because we came together and we wrote that. We worked on that together. You know, for the first time, we had representatives from, from the UK, from France, from Germany, from Spain, from Austria, Switzerland, Sweden, Netherlands. We were all coming together and to have those wonderful conversations and, you know, is watching the development of us as a group of people over that period of time was quite astounding really and so that's a good thing about it we now have a shared language we have much more uh, broader view of, of, of what's going on out there so i think standards are great and i think when they're published they're great but i also don't think they are the benchmark where we should be looking for i think we should be raising it above the standard you know we worked on a document called the uk ropes course guide and it's now called the uk off uk off ground adventurous activities guide and that's like the standard plus if you like it's not the bare minimum here it's like let's look beyond that you know what else can we do how can we be even better than that but of course it doesn't have quite the authority of the of the standard so standards are great i think the the, the growth in the industry is fantastic you know there's some amazing exciting things out there now the other thing it brought in as well the growth in the industry in the uk was it brought in a different type of ownership so the historical ownership of ropes courses back in the 90s and even in the 2000s and still to this day are people who want to use the ropes course for growth and development of people and they want to make a bit of money out of it they want to have a comfortable life they want to have a home and they want to be able to put their children for education and all those kind of things but that's not their driver the driver behind the ropes course and having it is to enable people to feel better, to be better, to, to grow those human values. That's why they want it. Where, of course, now the ownership of a ropes course and an adventure park and a zip park might be just, I want to make loads of money. I want to make a ton of money and I want this zip line to make me that money and I'm setting these deadlines and I want you know do, do it this way. And I think that is certainly an issue. I think it's calming down a little bit now, but certainly in, in the sort of from sort of 2000 to up until quite recently, maybe 2015, 2017, 2018, I thought that brought in a different type of ownership, which with it brought a whole new set of risks and problems and drives of commerciality, which 
maybe reduce some of the social impact that ropes courses can have and also raise some of the risk. Um, and if I certainly look at accidents that I'm aware of, a lot of them are in that sort of more commercial world. What is important, and I've spoken to other uh, vendors, um, I would encourage you to check out an interview I did with Kevin Trump and Alex Moore from the organization Synego, that the combination, what they're trying to do is combine this facilitation, slower pace with the commercial, not saying that there's this separation, which we were also witnessing. It's interesting that the UK had a very similar experience here in the US. But now we've got, we've had more of those courses, even reaching out to folks like us and saying like, how can we work with our staff to be better? Even guides, right? Because the human quality, the piece we go back to before, that human part is always going to be the core that brings people in. Especially if you end up getting in a competitive market, if your if your staff, your guides are poor social human beings, and they're not interacting in a way with their clients that is really facilitated, because you can facilitate a guided experience, and that's the that was the miss. I think they were like, this is going to solve, this is more throughput, but forgot there's a human part, and that's going to affect their reviews or all of those kind of things. So there seems to be a almost like a, a drawback. ACCT for us really advocating for us to you know for there to be much more educational workshops at the, at the upcoming conference for that very reason it's far broader facilitation technique isn't just isolated if folks doing team building and i think that that's a, an important part of of what i'm seeing in terms of the industry yeah there's um what we certainly saw is the the, the commerciality of of ropes courses which which sort of started in the early 2000s progressed all the way through it led to the user the purchaser of the experiencing wanting or measuring successful experience in a different way. So when I first worked on a ropes course, we would have a group for the day and we wouldn't define whether we're going to do low ropes or high ropes. We'd have a group, we'd sit down with them, we'd plan our day and we'd go out there and we might do a bit of low, a bit of high, we might get four activities done, we might get five activities done. That wasn't, the, the, the activity was the byproduct. That wasn't why they were, they were here for these other reasons and that's what we were focusing on. And slowly over those decades, it's changed to become, come to us and do five activities. You're going to do the Jacob's Ladder and you're going to do the Leap of Faith and everybody will get a go. And they go, well, hold on a minute, you're doing Jacob's Ladder Leap over there, they're doing Jacob's Ladder Leap of Faith and Crate Stack or they're better. And it just became the measure of, of quality and success change. And it's and we've seen outdoor education centers have to have to move towards that in order to pull people in and saying, well, we're going to give you this number of activities, so you'll you'll come here. And so the, the the educational bit is taking a bit of a hit. But we are seeing it changing. So the company that now run the ropes course here, they still run it in that way. And they're still busy. You know, you, on a busy day out here, there's two, three different groups from different places and, and they will be there for the whole day. And we are seeing that coming back in again. People are realizing that the true quality experience comes from when you focus on the, the, the people goals rather than the practical goals. The activity is the byproduct. And going back to what you said before about bringing in some of those facilitation skills into the adventure park market, you know, absolutely. You know, what do people remember? They remember the people who took them on the on the course. That's what they remember. You know, when the, the crossings and the wobbly bridges and the things that they invest all these hundreds of thousands of pounds in, you know, I want the best crossings and bridges and everything. It's like you can have all of that. But if you haven't got the staff to go with it, who understand how to talk to people and how to raise that experience, just up that notch, you know, and ask those questions when they're coming off the other side. Hey, what was the best thing you did? Tell me your story. You know, that simple question when they come off the experience, it builds that memory stronger, enhances their experience. You know, what was the most fun thing you did today? Tell me all about it. That skill set, which seems so simple when I say it like that, it, it needs to come into that adventure park market because if you haven't got the right staff, behaving and asking those questions in that way you're you're 
multi-million pound wonder build is just not going to function. It needs to be there. It's slightly different to working in an educational group, but the basic principles are the same. As a staff, we decided to go as a as a training team. We went on a day and we went to an aero adventure park. We went to a, a zip tour and it was the best facilitated experience I've had in a long, long time based on the humans. You know, yeah. we were, it, we, the, the, the setup was a guided experience and, the, and our guide was just an, a phenomenally sociable human being that just made us feel and I it's true I can't remember how many zips we did I remember the person invited them to speak at a conference that we had you know like I wanted I want to highlight their them because I think too often we split these worlds apart like there's the facilitated educational and then there's the pay-for-play commercial that those two never line up and they have some similar fuff technology wise but absolutely not I think the facilitating the human stuff absolutely cross-pollinates and, and and they both need to work commercially. It's a different commercial model, maybe, but they both still need to pay for themselves. And everybody needs still needs to earn their salary. And those salaries need to, you know, encourage people to stay and work there. And it's still got to function commercially. You know, like you say, the end goal maybe is slightly different, but I think the processes are pretty much similar as you take those people through their experience from beginning to end. We're going to end it in a moment. I'm just going to end with one. I wrote this down because I was watching a video. Now, this is a long time ago. So I want to put this out there. Is you have some videos on your website and it's like from 12 years ago. So I'm not, I'm not holding <laughs> you to have, anything you were 12 years did I, ago. Did I still have hair? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you didn't have any facial hair. So I don't know if that is. Um, <laughs> right. um, yeah. it's, all, it's all moved south. Yeah. Helmets, it's helmets that do that, by the way. And this is, I know of this because I, you know, I train a lot of people that come over from the UK. And this is a this is a belay technique that we do not have here in the states. But I I just just to highlight the difference between maybe UK US mm-hmm. and I love your thoughts on the rationale behind this version is the V to the knee one two three belay <laughs> technique. It's it's not something that's here in the US, but I've seen interacted with this so often <laughs> from coming over. And I'll get the question because people because because of my accent, I must understand it. But I've played around with it and I love it because it, it's catchy. It's one of those catchy techniques. Is it something that you still teach? Is there is there rationale to the hand sweep swapping technique rather than the sliding technique of maybe a pull break under slide that we would do here in the US? Yeah, I would. Do you know what I would do? I will t- I just I will talk about it. I will keep it quite short because you can probably pick up my answer things far too long but um i I just remind you of that website uh, sorry youtube channel hard is easy and he does a whole sort of half hour piece about belaying and he goes through all of these things actually on there and it's really good so i would recommend it but i have no idea where v to the knee to the one two three comes from lots of people will think they created it but i'm not so sure where it came from but it just spread all across the uk i think it started out in some of these multi-activity centers companies like pgl and kingswood leisure which over in north america you probably never heard of but over here they're big multi-sided uh, organizations that work with tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands if not millions of children every year but i think it came from that so the idea behind it is you you punch up for your v so it's v then it's towards your knee and that that's really important because if you say knee everyone's bending over trying to get their hand on their knee towards your knee and then there's free hand movements the one two three now some people do the crossover motion but what they often find is when they let go with this hand rather than putting it back on the rope they end up putting it in the wrong place so the idea behind it is you do the the, the last one is a slide up so the the brake hands never leaves that rope basically that's the idea behind it the brake hand never leaves the rope it always slides up and stays in contact with the rope but i get people to sing it and i'll have people on the tracing course so like almost wrapping it so we go the v to the knee to the one two three <laughs> getting them kind of turning it into a bit of a beat because yeah. v lane to me is about rhythm and it's that one two three needs to be quicker so if you go v knee 
one, two, three. The person's about, you know, 10 feet up the pole and they're beyond, you know. So yeah, V to the knee to the one, two, three. And I get people singing it and dancing it. And some people hate it. It's got, it's, it's sort of spread throughout the United Kingdom now where some people cannot stand it. And they're coming up with their own versions, you know, up to the sky, hand down and you slide and all these other variations. But the important thing is, of course, you're getting people to put words and numbers and rhythm to what they're doing to help them to remember it. And I think teaching someone to be a competent B-layer is probably one of the hardest skills they can master. It's really complicated and, you know, it needs to be given the right time. Yeah. So there you go. That's where it comes from. Nobody knows where it came from, but it's really common and you're very happy to rap and sing it to your heart's content. Awesome. Uh, yeah. I, I've just, I've interacted with it so many times. People ask me, where's it come from? And so I said, well, when I have the opportunity to speak to someone in the UK, maybe I'll ask them, but I'm glad you don't yeah. want to because that makes you feel like I've, I've no idea where it came from, but it's, it's everywhere. I've been saying it for years. Every yeah. UK person that comes over here to do training for summer camp, every time I'm doing a training, I'm just like, if yeah. you've had experience, I'm going to say V to the knee. And they're like, they start to giggle. And I'm like, okay, that's not something we teach here in the US. But interestingly enough, I've been to places that we've gone back to later and they don't call it belaying anymore. They call it V to the knee. We're going to, we, we need to do some V to the knee. They actually call belaying V to the knee. And it's like, all oh, right, okay, we'll, we'll call it V to the knee whilst I'm here then. I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah. Well, and the reality is, and I wonder if you experience this too, people don't even know what the word belay means. Certain things become too, so traditionalized that people just don't even know what they mean anymore. We just, mm. even trying to get past the, um, am I on belay, belay is on, can I climb, climb away kind of command system. If you don't know what it means, then avoid those words and just say, am I ready, ready, climb and climb away. Yeah, make it part of the group's conversation. Get them and say, right, you need to come up with a way to resolve this situation to make sure everybody's ready. What are you going to do? And, and they come up with their own. Yeah, because it's about being ready. It's not about the commands. We don't need to That's do right. those. We need to understand someone climbs before a belayer is ready. That's a problem, right? Well, it comes the history of it. Those set calls, you know, take in, that's me. It's, it's two people on a mountain who can't see each other, you know, and that's where it comes from. Not two people stood on a forested floor right next to each other. <laughs> yeah, um, everybody can see each other. Well, this has been a real pleasure, Steve, and I, and I hope we get the opportunity to do it again. I also encourage you to check out um, some blog posts. If you've seen uh, Emma Bell and Steve Wood in um, API, then you're Adventure Park Insider. They've written some articles on there. And I'll throw into the description of this episode where you can find information about Vertex and how you can contact Steve if you'd like to contact Steve. They'll all be in there. Check out the website. They've got some videos as I sort of described. They've got some uh, blog posts in there as well in terms of stuff they've written. But I encourage you to reach out to them and and connect with them as well because Steve has a wealth of information and knowledge. So please utilize him. So thanks once again to Steve Woods and the team at Vertex for this conversation. Hope you were able to get something out of it. Hope you were able to feed off the energy that Steve has around this industry. I'm going to throw into the description all the ways you can check them out. And please follow, share, review, listen, tell your friends then listen a second time and I will see you on the next one. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs> <laughs>